Okay, I have Kunal Gupta here as a guest. He's the CEO of Polar, a global technology business that works with major media companies and publishers like Adweek, Bloomberg, USA Today, Telegraph. He built his company straight from college in 2007. Since then, had over 10 million downloads in a number of countries uh, from this of this app. And he's a board member of KMH Foundation, supporting Canada's leading mental health teaching and research hospital. Kunal is a huge advocate of mindfulness, self-awareness, and personal growth. He has a large selection of articles on his blog, findfocus.today. And I can guarantee you guys, he will come back with more knowledge about understanding yourself than you ever expected. He's been included in Marketing Magazine 30 Under 30 list. And today he's here on Ross Growth. Kunal, thank you so much for taking time to, to come on the show. Thanks for having me. So you developed I want to start with your culture framework that you developed for your company uh, and to help your employees understand why they work there. What are those four main pillars and how did you execute them in the company? Sure, sure. So it's five, five pillars. It was a few years ago. I, it was a summer and I remember asking myself, I wonder why everyone works here at, at the company. I started okay. like actually asking people, like literally just going up to them and asking, like, why do you work here? I got back for like <laughs> stairs and like scared faces. And after asking like five or six people, I felt a little disappointed because I didn't get any real answers back. And that's when I realized, okay, this is actually a really hard question to answer. Like, why are you here? Why do you work? And I started to ask some of my entrepreneur friends, hey, why do you think people work for your company? And people started to give me different answers. And I probably spent about like two months passively reflecting and questioning and gathering insights as to why does anybody work at any organization? And with some help, I narrowed it down to five possible reasons. So the first one <clears> is mission and purpose. And that's like I connect with the problems that my company is trying to solve. The second one is growth and right. development, which is I want to learn new skills and gain challenges, solve challenges, irrespective of what the industry or problem domain is. The third one is people and community. And that's both the people inside the company, but also outside the company that I interact with on a regular basis. And the fourth one is recognition and compensation. I mean, there's a financial element to that, but there's other forms of recognition as well that people value. And the fifth yeah. one is wellness and balance. And, you know, truthfully, you know, probably like five years ago, I, that probably wouldn't have been on this framework. But as I've gone through my own journey and started to value it, I realized that others value it as well. So you have mission and purpose, growth and development, people and community, recognition and compensation and wellness and balance. So I created this little framework. I call it the Pentagon mm -hmm. because there were five categories. And then I started, I, I shared that with my team during a town hall. And then I asked people, why are you here? And it was very shocking everybody knew exactly why they were here they were able to answer it right away using the framework without mm -hmm. asking specifically for how many reasons everybody gave me back three reasons of everybody who answered it uh, just through my anecdotal conversations i would say two of their top three were pretty obvious to me but everybody had one thing they shared with me that was a surprise or something <clears throat> i wasn't expecting and that helped me really appreciate, okay, I don't know everything about why people are here. And this framework is really valuable to get that information and bring it to the surface. Um, and then what I've learned as a leader is that everybody's not here for the same reason. And 
you know, I think oftentimes in companies, startups, when I started the company 10 plus years ago, I would take like a, what I call a peanut butter approach where I'd like, if I'm here for like recognition and compensation, then I'd give stock options to everybody. And I still do. Um, <laughs> or if it's like wellness and balance, then let's do this one initiative and everybody's going to love it. Or if it's people in community, let's do this gathering and bring everyone together. And it's like, oftentimes I would take this peanut butter approach. But this framework helped me realize and be more nuanced that everybody's not here for the same reason. And that's what I think true diversity is, is right. the understanding and the respect that people's values are actually different. And that's a, that's a big task of leadership to recognize that and uh, support that. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really definitely a good approach to keep developing the company culture. Um, with, with regards to like self-awareness part and, um, you know, understanding your employees better, do you do like uh, personality tests or any kind of skill assessment to make sure that everybody interacts together well, or you have a small team and everybody knows everybody already? Yeah. So for, first of all, I, I, I kind of banned the word employees from our company for the last like six, seven years. I, uh, I just don't like it. So we use the word team members consistently in all of our documents and materials and conversations and job postings and everything. So team members, okay. we're part of the team. Um, so that's, that's important and that kind of sets the tone and, and the culture. Uh, specific to your question though on personality assessments, uh, we haven't done anything formally, but I will share that personally I've gotten a little obsessed, re-obsessed with Myers-Briggs. And the, the, the simple test, the free test online, 16personalities.com, is a, a useful tool for anybody who's interested. So good. I um, I took it last summer. A friend like re-encouraged me to, to take it after many years. And I, I wasn't surprised with the result, but when I actually read through the description, I, I learned a lot about myself. So you talk about self-awareness. It was a giant yeah. exercise in self-awareness. And I learned things about myself that... I kind of knew, but I probably wasn't accepting. So I should say, actually, the Myers-Briggs um, exercise helped me with self-acceptance. Mm. It helped me become aware of things that I kind of already knew, but seeing it written down, seeing it classified, made it easier for me to accept my quirkiness and accept some of the nuances and the things that I do habitually that I may have been beating myself up about. but. After seeing it down, I just kind of accepted, okay, that's that's how I roll. So let me work with that versus trying to change it, knowing that that would be counter to my, my nature. What did you, what was your result? What was the, the combination you got? I'm an INTJ. It's the architect personality. Um, mm-hmm. We like to think that we're special. <laughs> it means, you know, it's, it's, it, it's I probably on halfway on the IE line. Uh, strong N, strong T, you know, um, medium J. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means is I like to think a lot. I like to analyze. I like to process. I like to, it's called the architect for a reason. I like to develop frameworks to make sense of the world. And I almost have to like deconstruct things. Just like the first question you asked me, like why does somebody work mm-hmm. here? I have to like deconstruct it and reconstruct it for me to really understand it. And I get a lot of joy in that at an intellectual level. 
And, you know, for anybody who wants to know more about your obsession with frameworks and analytics, all they have to do is go back and read your post. How did I spend my hours in 2017? That post is, that's that's extremely impressive, which we will (laughs) get to that. Yeah, there's, there's, um, I mean, there's a movement called Quantified Self um, that I got into for a couple of years. I, I, I've kind of like let it go intentionally in the last year, but while I was in it, it was so much fun. And Quantified Self is to, to use data to improve self-awareness. And then with that information, you start to make choices more intentionally. So I tracked a lot of things. Um, it's on my blog. I tracked a lot of things from food to diet to sleep to meditation uh, to emotional state. Um, generally using anecdotal tools, um, screen time, mm-hmm. days of the week, location, uh, hours worked, um, where I, you know when I'm working, where I spend my time. And I used a lot of tools, a pretty giant spreadsheet, and a lot of oh, analysis. Yeah. So let let me ask you this, you live or you tried minimist lifestyle, and this is what I was able to gather from from your blog. Uh, What does it look like for you living that lifestyle and why does it work? For me, I've I've gone to a a pretty extreme minimalist lifestyle, but it was from a place of I was on an extreme called consumerist lifestyle. And I had to like see one side to be able to see and appreciate the other. So I used to I used to buy a lot of stuff. And people who are close to me now have a hard time believing that. But I used to go shopping all the time. I used to buy a lot of clothes, and I had a nice apartment in Toronto, a nice car, and I used to have uh, a very consumeristic lifestyle. And I did that at a certain stage in life, and I'm glad that I did that because now I can appreciate a lifestyle that doesn't have much of that. And it's basically been a giant experiment to see what does life look like with more stuff and then what does life look like with less stuff. And having experienced both extremes, I I can say for me now at this point in my life, I really appreciate having less stuff, less is more, and I've, I've seen that firsthand. What is it, is this just a allows you to focus on what's really important in life. You're not really spending attention on things that probably don't really add up to your level of happiness or there are some other aspects to it. So this is a, this is a framework I haven't yet published, but it's one that's really helped me, helped kind of describes my journey uh, in the last phase of my life. And I'll describe it in a way that hopefully others can relate to. So. A lot of the advertised values and beliefs in our society encourage us to chase uh, choices that I believe cultivate pleasure and thrill. So pleasure and thrill is experienced through our senses, sight, sound, taste, touch. So that's things like having fancy things in your life that look good or eating or drinking certain foods which taste good or smells or touch, etc. So pleasure and thrill, a lot of the choices we make that are advertised to us in society, like improve, increase pleasure, increase thrill. But the thing about pleasure and thrill is that it's temporary and it's fleeting. We'll experience it like a dopamine hit and then it'll fade away. And then we have to take another action, another choice to experience it again. And then essentially we end up in this addiction loop. 
be into Netflix or Instagram or caffeine or alcohol or drugs or any other stimuli, they're all pleasure and thrill. So I was I was chasing that for, for, for a while, kind of inheriting those values from society. And then the, the next piece as it started to turn inwards about five, six years ago, uh, I called like peacefulness or, or contentness or happiness. And that's very different than pleasure and thrill. Like happiness is not eating ice cream or buying a nice purse or those types of things or having a drink, a glass of wine. Like that's not happiness, that's pleasure. Right. Happiness and contentness, what I've learned from my experiences is sitting inside and sitting within me. And I need, you need tools. I needed tools to go inside. And that's where meditation and yoga and reading and journaling and introspection were useful tools for me to realize that happiness and contentness is sitting inside. And that's very different. And as I started to go, like as I started to uh, meditate, um, I just naturally stopped drinking alcohol. <laughs> I, I haven't been drinking alcohol. Like I stopped drinking alcohol for like four or five years ago. Um, and that's directly correlated as I started to become more aware of myself and go inside, then the uh, appeal of external stimuli started to diminish to the point that it's not there. Same thing with like sugar and caffeine and things like that. But then there's a, there's a third thing. So pleasure is different than happiness and happiness is also different than purpose. And I would say in the last few years, that's really been strong in me and purpose and meaning I think comes from being of service and doing something for somebody other than yourself. Happiness is very right. inwards focused, the way I'm defining it and describing it right now. And purpose and meaning is very outward. And it's, it's, it's doing something and connecting to something bigger than yourself. It could be another person, it could be a child, it could be a society, it could be a spiritual belief, whatever that is. And that's where you see my volunteer work um, has ramped right. up. That's the whole reason I started my blog a few years ago was was it, it gives me a lot of purpose and meaning to hopefully be of service and, and share some ideas uh, and other activities I'm engaged with, even doing this podcast. Um, it all checks that box for me, which is, I'd say the current phase that, that drives me. Yeah, you've got uh, pretty unreal insights on the blog that are extraordinary. And you, you actually practice you practice self-awareness a lot. You've done it for many years and specifically meditation. I believe you do it for 75 minutes a day, which is unbelievable. When did you start and how did you evolve to being that really advanced in, in meditation? I, uh, I, I joke that I'm either always meditating or talking about meditation case in point right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I don't I don't formally meditate for 75 minutes a day but I, I do meditate every every day maybe 20 to 30 minutes this morning was mm -hmm. close to an hour okay. um, the way I so I started meditating about five years ago and it was uh, yeah I haven't stopped since then and uh, last few years I haven't stopped talking about it either uh, most mm -hmm. people that come in contact with me like socially end up starting to meditate it's it's kind of the first thing or the last thing I'll talk about Here's the way a teacher described it to me, and I've been very fortunate to have many good resources around me that have helped guide me, uh, both the teachers and, and books and retreats and courses and different teachings. So a daily meditation practice, actually, let me start with this. So meditation is often described as not thinking. It's been popularized as clearing your mind. The reality is it's none of that. To stop thinking would be to stop breathing Thoughts are what make us human. 
And thoughts are actually a very good thing. It's a very important aspect of our processing of information. Mm-hmm. To stop thoughts would be to stop that processing, which is like required. Meditation is a practice of observing what's happening, not of trying to control or stop what's happening. It's learning to see reality as it is, which is we have thoughts just like we have a breath. It's right. not seeing reality as we wish it to be, which is trying to change things. So with that understanding, um, meditation is a practice to watch what's going on. And it's what it does is it helps strengthen awareness, starting with awareness of kind of anything, your breath, your body, your space. Um, and then as you become aware of things, or as I've become aware of things, then I start to accept what I become aware of. And that combination of awareness and acceptance is very, very powerful. And when, when it's meditating, when I'm meditating, it's called the practice because it's, it's, it's the practice of awareness and the practice of acceptance. So that when I'm not meditating, when I'm in normal day-to-day life, I've got those skills, those muscles of awareness and acceptance that I'm able to apply consciously or unconsciously. And the net result of meditation is that, for me, is that I've been able to go through life with a little more ease and a little less friction mentally. Mm. It's a great way to apply it during the, during the day, during your, your year, and, and put it all, all into practice. Um, the way that the way that you described. Let me ask you this. You said something that really what resonated with me. You said jet lag. You talked about jet lags and, and flights and traveling. You're on the road for very for many days during the year. Jet lag is a disease of mind. You take in about 600 plus flights, probably more by now. And then you said with greater awareness of my body and mind, jet lag naturally becomes less of an art and more of a science. Talk to me about that. How do you how did you come up with that? Yeah, it was um, I'd come back from this like business trip where I went around the world a few months ago, and somebody on my team asked if I had jet lag. And without even thinking it, I just turned to her and I was like, "No, jet lag is a disease of the mind." And then after a <laughs> second, I realized what I had said, and I was like, "Why did I say that?" And then mm-hmm. I was like, "Yeah, actually, like jet, jet lag is something we convince ourselves of. Either way, either, as in I have it or I don't have it." I've, I've traveled a lot, I've traveled a lot internationally, and I actually enjoy travel. I think it's kind of like going to the movies. You don't know what's going to happen. And if you're aware through the process of traveling, then I get to just like sit back and observe what's happening. And it's like a movie because it's, it's unpredictable every single time. Specific to jet lag, there are a lot of self-care and wellness um, tips that I've learned over the years and I've been fortunate to, to get them from other people and some come up with on my own. Uh, taking care of the, the body is, is super important. So that's, that's sleep, that's uh, caffeine, that's alcohol, that's sugar, that's um, food. So I'd say the biggest thing is to avoid like all stimulants which I naturally do now as a default state but for those that don't like while you're traveling Drinking alcohol, even though it's often offered for free on international flights, is a really bad idea. Caffeine is a bad idea. Heavy foods, fried foods, bad idea. Um, It's good to be light and natural and clean because the body is going through a lot of adjustments. And all these substances like alcohol, caffeine, and sugar are not normal substances for the body. So the body has to like work uh, extra hard 
So it's best to just give the body a break so it could focus on the other work it's doing, which is adjusting. It's important to eat based on where you are, irrespective of if you're hungry or not. So when I travel to London or Sydney or wherever, I will eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner like a local. It doesn't matter if I'm hungry or not. Um, yeah. For most people, myself included, melatonin is a helpful herbal supplement that aids, it's a sleep aid. Um, it's over the counter in most countries. Uh, I don't blindly recommend it though, because it does have adverse effects for some people, but for most people it is fine. So I use melatonin when I travel and that is super helpful uh, as well. Um, and then in general, like being mindful with screens. So be it the screen uh, behind the seat in front of you on the plane or the screen in your pocket or on your laptop. Um, screens affect your sleep. They affect your circadian <coughs> rhythm. They, <coughs> the blue light um, impedes the creation of melatonin in your brain naturally and the melatonin is needed to put the different kind of rooms in the house as in the parts of the brain to sleep. So I'm very, very, yeah, absolutely. you know, with, uh, with screens. It, it, it's totally, it's such a big part with, with all that, that you described, those are all extremely important things, obviously to get to that level of happiness and self-control and self-awareness. But there's at that point, there's so many temptations. There's free stuff, there's free donuts, there's, whatever else, other distractions, notifications that surround us all. How can somebody or what will be your advice for people to fight that or to overcome that? Um, what are some of the tools that people could use uh, and take away uh, to get to that point where they are not only aware, but I also actually follow that, not drinking or not you know, doing, looking at the screen all the time? two answers to that question. It's one that I've actually uh, been drafting a blog post on, but I haven't written it yet, so I'll give it a try right now. <laughs> so the, the, the first answer is the easy one, which is like put in place the controls and the tools to help you. But to be honest, like notifications, sugar cravings, all the things that you just described, those are all symptoms. That's what I've realized. I've reflected on this very deeply. Those are all symptoms. Those aren't the actual root cause. So um, <clears throat> you can address the symptoms with just tools and constraints and some self-discipline. It takes a ridiculous amount of energy to constantly be managing symptoms. If you really want to change yourself, then you have to go deeper and understand the root cause. And the, the root cause is, frankly, it's like acceptance of reality. So it's being able to see things as they are, which is like, hey, in this situation, I'm bored. Or in this situation, I'm hungry. Or in this situation, I have a craving. To see it and then also accept it. Okay, I'm just going to say, like, I accept it. I'm okay to feel this way right now. Versus, I don't accept it as like, I see something and I got to do something to change that because I'm not liking the state that I'm in. And I need to move to kind of a state of ignorance or a different state to change my current state. That I'm talking at a very meta level here, but the, the deeper cause of all these addiction symptoms we see in our society and our daily life, I believe is a lack of acceptance of the state that we might be in throughout the day. And once we can just see it and then accept it, 
it's not a jest, it's very hard to do. But once we can accept ourselves as we are, as we are feeling, then the symptoms will naturally fade away. And that's me speaking from my own experience. Okay. That's very interesting. Very, very interesting. Now, you also are a big proponent of doing one thing or doing the top three things and just being doing less and achieving more. And I think you said something like choosing to focus is one thing, but staying focused is another thing. How, like, why is that? And how did you apply it maybe in your daily life? Yeah. Thank you for that reminder. <laughs> it's important <laughs> to have those reminders. I, I reflected on this actually this morning and mm. I, I fell in love about a year and a half ago with this idea of threes and top three. And I'm sure you can tell by now I get a little obsessive and I'm very aware of it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> when I get onto something, so I, I, I fell in love with this idea of three. So I used to make mm -hmm. these lists of things to do in the business or priorities or even to personal to-do lists or whatever. And the list would have like 17 things on them. Sound familiar? <laughs> so, oh yeah, such a common thing. I, 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 I just like forced myself and it was really hard mentally and intellectually to say like, what are the three things that we need to do or three things I want to do or three goals or three targets or just three clients? Like just what are the three mm -hmm. things? And what that does, yeah. what that did for me is it forced thought up front and asked, I had to ask myself like the hard questions and make those trade-offs up front. And once I made those trade-offs up front, then everything else actually became easier because I made that decision up front. So for example, mm -hmm. like at the start of last year, we, you know, the three thing came up for me and I was like, okay, there's going to be three priorities for the business in 2018. And people's compensation plans. <laughs> we have variable compensation plans. There's going to be only three targets, three elements mm -hmm. of it before there used to be like seven elements to it. Um, right. Self reviews. There's going to be three questions on that form, not six questions. Our sales presentation to clients. There's going to be three parts to the value proposition that we emphasize in terms of our priority clients. We're just going to pick the top three clients mm -hmm. to really focus on. Um, I structured the whole company into three departments. <laughs> like so like yeah. everything okay. became everything became threes. And it just really helped. It really helped. And mm -hmm. I, I still I guess I do it more naturally. Eighteen months ago I was doing it in a very conscious way, and now it happens in a more natural way. With limiting things and like I find from from a personal experience and from what I was uh, what I was reading and, and hearing other people describing it, when you choose consciously to focus on less there's inevitable anxiety of fear of missing out or maybe you sh still should be doing the number four item on the list do you accept it first and you accept that this is the way it will be and i'm just not gonna think about it and that's the start or how do you remove that other 10 items or five items and be okay with that my experience has taught me that even when selecting three, I never make it to number three. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm happy and lucky if I make it to number two. <laughs> like, I, mean, so, I, I mean, I I thought so many times changing it to top two. So like that's like number four is not even a question, to be honest. It's like, mm. is number okay. three even going to be? 
<laughs> you know, realistic. Okay, interesting. Um, and you're like, I know you tried or like you bought a flip phone for like a $30 with no email. You were specifically looking for that, I believe Nokia. Are you still using that? So that was a, that was a blog post by my friend, Jen. And I admire her so much because um, I thought about doing that and I think I've okay. kind of given up on it right now, but she actually did that experiment. She's still doing it. It's been 18 months or maybe close to two years now that she's been using a flip phone. Um, and on top of that, she doesn't have internet in her apartment. So if you connect wow. those two things together, the moment she leaves her office and she's an entrepreneur, mm. she's not connected to email or to any internet <laughs> services. That's uh, incredible. I, I wrote, I wrote a, I sent out my newsletter, I think a week ago, yeah, or two weeks ago. Um, and I wrote about digital wellness mm -hmm. topics, and one of the things I predicted is in a few years I won't have a phone. And that's like more <laughs> of a fantasy. I don't know if that'll actually happen, but um, we can all dream. I'm looking forward to reading that. <laughs> Listen, uh, Kunal, you, I believe you're very, like you, you only check your email a few times a day. You don't, you're not really on Slack until, unless you actually have to check it maybe once or twice a day. What if maybe your team needs your input and you are a blocker and you don't really know that? Is that something that you accept or is it something that you do the work before to make sure that doesn't happen and the decisions could be made without you being there? I've learned in 10 years in business and 20 years as a leader that I'm just not that important. <laughs> and, and to be honest, I say this to my entrepreneur and CEO friends, I say this to my client, like none of us in the, you know, I should preface it, B2B software. It's not, uh, and we're in the media and publishing industry, like none of us are that important. And it, it takes a degree of humility and grounding to just really understand that at, a, at an emotional level. And once we understand that we're not that important, then we stop stressing out about constantly being connected and constantly checking in because we realize we're just not that important. And <clears throat> it's from that place of grounding that, that I show up. And that's also changes the way that I set expectations and those around me and my team. And that like mm -hmm. when people go on vacation, they have to disconnect. There is not an option to stay connected. They will get okay. A, oh, so, they'll okay, get a so that's the policy. Yeah, they'll get a lecture from me if like I see them on Slack or get an email or if I see them respond to a client email or they send a message on Slack, like mm. it's done, it's game over. They'll hear, not, hear the <laughs> end of it for me. And same thing for me, when I take holidays and I, I do, I'm 100% disconnected. Um, and that's the expectation of in the team. Um, same thing on, on weekends, same thing on evenings. Like <laughs> it's important for everybody. And uh, this is probably one thing I feel very passionate about. I'm sure you can tell that <clears throat> Our culture is moving in the opposite direction, unless you're in like France or Germany that have put laws in place. In general, yes. culture is moved in the opposite direction, which is to always be connected, even when you're on quote unquote vacation. So we've gone counterculture there. We've adopted the French and German, you know, approach, where like evenings and weekends and vacation is your time to rest, to mm. recoup, to re-energize. 
and uh, it's kind of like a cell phone plan, right? Like the daytime right. minutes are back in the day, the daytime minutes are the valuable ones. So treat those in a focused, efficient way. And then the rest of them are free for you, not for me. And it's a sad part, uh, I think, Kunal, where companies actually expect to for an employee or a team member, as you would say, to respond on a Saturday at 5 p.m. or on a Sunday at 9 a.m. And it's very much encouraged. Yeah, I mean, there's there's also this thing actually as a company. Like if you read um, Sapiens, like he explains this in a way that I've really resonated with. Like there's no such thing as a company, corporation, even government or country. It's just a collection of people. So whenever we see these decisions or choices that we don't agree with, it's not like, oh, that company made those choices. Everything is a collection of people. So there are people that have made these choices and to not choose is also a choice, right? So to not yeah. choose yes. to encourage uh, disconnection from technology or email while one is away, that's a choice. And uh, it's a choice that a lot of people have made, which is disappointing to me. Uh, we've made a different choice, which is like take time for yourself. Mm. And uh, it starts with me doing it for myself. I want to ask you this. Uh, I believe it was you quoted somebody in one of your one of your posts. Uh, the quote was something that I, I totally loved. In life, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. So how do you understand that? And how do you interpret that for you? Yeah, so we, we learn everything. A meditation teacher explained this to me once. We learn in two ways, intellectually. So for all of you listening to this conversation right now, you're absorbing this information at a pure intellectual level. If you read a book or blog or podcast, it's all at an intellectual level. And learning intellectually is good. Suffice, it sparks curiosity, but it's not enough to actually understand something. The second way we learn is through experience. Experience takes like work and time. And unless you experience some of the things that we're discussing right now, you're actually not going to understand them. So this idea of, of pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. That's something that intellectually I heard for years. It's in a lot of you know meditative texts and teachings, but I had no idea what that actually meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah. mean, intellectually I could explain it probably, but. Uh, Recently, about a month ago, I actually experienced that. And the way I experienced it was through a back injury. It was an injury that I had six years ago and I re-injured it a month ago. And Mm. I've re-injured it actually many times. The last few years, not so much, but uh, before I had. And every other time I had re-injured it, painfully, like physically, a lot of pain. It's a lower back spasm. And muscles tighten up, making it difficult to move, to stand straight, to bend over, to walk fast, or do any exercise. But mm-hmm. mentally, I also experienced a lot of agitation, stress and anxiety and nervousness and discomfort, not knowing what was going to happen and fear. A month ago, when I re-injured my back, a day and a half and like extreme physical pain, was not able to move around, was lying in bed all day, would try and get up and fall back down, like rearrange my schedule, everything. I noticed a day and a half into the back spasm, I did not feel an ounce of mental agitation. And mentally I was as cool as a cucumber. And I was like, this is weird, this is different. I've had the same injury before, but 
before I've like mentally been agitated, but now I don't feel a thing. And it was this understanding of seeing my own reality as it was and then accepting it. And that's what my experience was to have pain, a lot of physical pain, but not any suffering attached to it. And I say this and you'll hear it intellectually and I'll say it again, like you won't actually understand it until you experience it. But that was my experience. Is that the the goal to make sure that, or to try to convert those experiences into something other than suffering? The goal to experience. The goal is awareness, and with awareness, everything changes. Any time I feel agitation, be it stress, anger, tension, anxiety, it's a failure for me to see reality as it is. What I'm doing is I'm seeing a different reality, what I wish it to be, and that space between what is actually happening and what I want to be happening is what causes agitation in the mind. So if I ask somebody on the team to do something and they don't do it in a way that I expect and I get agitated, it's because I'm expecting one thing and the reality is something different. Versus I ask someone to do something, they give it to me, it's not what I thought it would be, but I take a moment to understand, like, how did they come to this and why is it that way? And I can see the reality as it is. Okay, I didn't give clear instruction. Or, okay, this is their opinion. Okay, this is their skill set. And then I understand reality as it is. Then there's no agitation. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, Kunal, I believe you are a big reader. You probably consume a lot of different types of content and a lot of on self awareness and development. You mentioned one book, Sapiens. Are there any books that you keep coming back to business or personal? I'm a very slow reader. <laughs> very, very slow reader. <laughs> okay. And I, 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 it's kind of like enjoying a really tasty meal. That's how I read. Mm-hmm. It's like, I just want to savor it and go through it very slowly mm-hmm. versus seeing it as something I need to strive for or achieve or accomplish. So reading okay. for me is definitely a, a joy and yeah. a, a hobby and a pastime versus like work. For that reason, I, I rarely actually read any business books. Rarely, rarely mm. do. And um, if you look at my blog, like I, I try to explain things just from a place of experience. And the, the few uh, things that I read that are people sharing from their own experiences, I connect with for sure. And I mm-hmm. like to hear stories. Um, so that's the stuff I gravitate towards. Uh, I'd say so I, you prefer practical? Um, yeah, more like historical, but like people's own history um, mm-hmm. versus like, you know, guidelines and things right. like that. Um, I love fiction. Um, I love things around science, around topics I don't know much about. Um, I like history, if it's something that, that captivates me. Um, I love books that force me to think about spirituality and different mm-hmm. religions from the world and different spiritual practices. Um, I, I teach meditation. I recently became certified as a yoga teacher, so through that I, I read a lot oh. of meditation and yoga materials. Right. Um, I try to read something every day, but I'm not always successful at that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you uh, you make up and uh, I guess apply in that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How can let me let me ask you this? 
how can people be more self-aware, more open and more curious? Medi- Just in general, in yeah. general, what are some of the things they, or areas they should be looking at? Meditate. <laughs> okay. And, okay. and I'll, 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 I'll just spend a minute to explain how to meditate. Knowing that meditation is not about trying to stop or control or clear your mind. My guidance is to start with a two minute meditation. And I guarantee you, if you're listening to this, like you have two minutes, you just spent the last, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes listening to this. So Mm -hmm. even hit pause right now if you want and take two minutes to meditate. So in those two minutes, choose to do one of three things. It's really set or stand. You can even keep your eyes open or your eyes closed, whatever you'd like. Just don't do it lying down because that's not called meditation. That's called sleeping. So... (laughs) Do one of three things. Bring your attention to your space, which means feel the floor under your feet, feel the chair or the bed under your seat, feel the temperature in the room, notice the sounds. Just connect with the different elements of the space and take two minutes to really absorb the space that you're in. That's one option. A second option is to focus on your body, which is to feel the weight in your legs, to feel the strength of your muscles, to relax your shoulders, to notice any areas that are in tension or pain or calling for your attention. And the third option is to focus on the breath. And that's actually the hardest one, to pick a part of the body where you can visibly feel the sensation of breathing. Usually it's the nose, the throat, the chest, or the stomach. And try to continue to let your attention gently stay with that part of your body as you watch each inhale and each exhale. Almost as if you're not going to let a single inhale or exhale escape your attention. It's very useful to set a timer so that you don't spend time thinking about when the two minutes is up. So set a two minute timer on your phone. You know, you can use the voice activated stuff for that. It's very convenient. And then pay attention to your space, pay attention to your body or pay attention to your breath. Do that two minutes a day, ideally in the morning and or evening. And, uh, and then just see what happens. And do you recommend you know, doing that when, let's say, somebody just started out and I'm pretty new to meditation myself, do you recommend a guided one with an app or just set in a timer and not non-guided one? I recommend doing something consistently. It does not matter what you do. It could be a mindful walk. It could mean the two-minute meditation I just explained. It could mean a headspace or calm or insight timer session. It could mean going mm-hmm. to a yoga class or meditation studio. It actually does not matter, and it's totally fine to change it up every day. But I would focus on consistency. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about the technique. The technique will come later. The most important part initially, if you're open to it, is, is consistency. Right. It's the building the habit part where you are not trying to get away from the willpower. Yeah. And then once, like, this is a different framework, but it's kind of like, how do you master something? If you visualize a pyramid, the base level is openness. Am I open to meditation or learning a language or trying a new activity or learning a new skill? So that's the first piece. And talking to it sounds like you're open to meditation. The next level of this pyramid is consistency. So consistency doesn't have to mean every day. Meditation usually does, but it could mean every week, it could mean every month, it could mean every hour. Like whatever consistency means for you, it's a personal choice. 
when you're focused on consistency, the technique doesn't matter. The technique is the third level of this pyramid. And you should only pay attention to technique once you have the foundation of consistency in your lifestyle. Because what happens is you're going to experiment with different techniques. So in the case of meditation, there's four types of meditations. Mm -hmm. There's observation, which is like mindfulness techniques, where you observe something in the breath, body, space. Um, there's verbalization, which is a, a, a thought or mantra or word or, or saying that you're repeating to yourself. There's uh, visualization, where you're visualizing an idea, a person, a light, a figure. And then there's contemplation, where there's a specific topic that you're intentionally thinking mm -hmm. about. So those are the four types, categories of meditation. So that's the technique. And when you're experimenting with technique, if you experiment with it too soon, the risk is if you find a technique that you don't like, you throw it all out and you say meditation is not for me. Well, no, that meditation technique was not for you. That's why it's very important to keep consistency. So consistency, openness, consistency, technique. And once you get into a technique that's really you're connecting with, then you move to the top of the pyramid, the fourth layer, which is mastery. At that point, you almost have a responsibility to become a teacher because you've mastered this and then it's your responsibility to, to share that and give that back. And this right. applies to anything. Unconscious competence. Yeah, this applies to anything. This is not specific to, <clears throat> to meditation. Um, that applies to, to anything. So this is, uh, this is, guys, how you can do it. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it too and just get a little bit more consistency, which I didn't quite achieve with meditation. But uh, that's that's really, really impressive. Kunal, where's everybody can find you online? So my blog is findfocus, F-I-N-D-F-O-C-U-S, dot today, T-O-D-A-Y. And LinkedIn, I'm fairly active on sharing on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to connect with me. I am on Medium, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc., but I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I don't frequently visit those channels. Um, yeah. And then actually, I, I set up just a landing page at by, so by, by Kunal, K U N A L dot com. And that's where I've got links to my company, uh, some of the charity work that I do, the volunteer work that I'm doing, and my email address. And we will link it all below so you can go check out. And you actually, by the way, should go check out articles that Kunal writes on the blog. He's got a bunch of them on LinkedIn and his landing page definitely are the things where you can learn more about meditation, self-awareness, focus, and just uh, like practical application of self-awareness in general. Kunal, let me ask you the last question. What impact would you like to make with the work that you're doing and the charity work that you're doing? I think mental health and wellness is gonna be the biggest issue facing our society in the next few decades. We've learned a lot about our body and physical health in the last few decades, a lot of scientific breakthroughs, and we haven't solved all of the illnesses yet, but we yeah. understand what we know and don't know, and there's a lot of resources being applied to the body. I think the mind is, we're just getting started, it's the first inning. And the next couple of decades, a lot of the underlying issues we see in our society, even today, will be, you know, we can trace back to, to mental health and wellness. And it's something that applies to all of us, absolutely all of us. And it's the area that I'm committed to, uh, you know, devoting a lot of time to and a lot of energy to in all the various capacities that I show up in, in life. Well, that's, that's amazing. Kunal, thank you so much for, for coming on the show, sharing your uh, in-depth 
in science and practical application of self-awareness. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you guys enjoyed this amazing interview with Kunal, go on Apple Podcasts and leave a six-star review. This is a six-star only show. And I will be doing slight repositioning of the podcast in a way that it will be specifically talking about psychology of business success, not business, it's just business success and not just marketing, because I believe uh, that mindset that controlling your thoughts, understanding you yourself under being self-aware is key to happiness and to success in life in whatever you're doing not just in business so we'll be focusing more on psychology we'll be making some changes if you have any questions you can always email me at sergeyross.live at gmail.com thanks for listening guys i will see you in the next episode